Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you all for being here for today's Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We go into the third day in Washington in which Kevin McCarthy is trying his best to become Speaker of the U.S. House. He's already moved everything uh, of his, all of his possessions into the Speaker's office. Uh, Patricia Murphy, among other people, uh, wondered in a column that she wrote yesterday about whether McCarthy may have moved a little too quickly uh, into that office since he continues to struggle to win uh, votes. We're going to talk about that, particularly in terms of how uh, Georgia members have been responding to McCarthy's efforts in a little while. But um, first, there's a really interesting story about the national democratic effort to move Georgia uh, way up on the primary schedule. And I want to start with that. And to do that, I want to introduce our panel today, which includes uh, Kevin Riley, who, of course, is the editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and is my Thursday partner on the show. Kevin, welcome. Glad to have you here. Bill, it is great to be here. And I just feel like I need to let you know this. Um, I'm really thinking about launching a drive to make you Speaker of the House. I mean, we need someone, and we need someone fast, and I think you can do the job. <laughs> Why, thank you for your vote of confidence there, uh, Kevin. Um, by the way, it is true that there is nothing Rich requires that the Speaker of the U.S. House be a member of Congress, which is why at one point Donald Trump suggested that perhaps he should become uh, a speaker. Uh, we're joined also today by Audrey Haynes, professor of political science at the University of Georgia and the head of the Applied Politics program there, which trains students for careers in politics. I don't know, Audrey, as your students watch what's unfolding in Washington, I'm not sure this is a time that they're looking forward to getting involved, at least in politics on the Hill. Well, I think some of them are are there and, and they are observing and, and, and may be a little disappointed or at least um, entertained by what is going on. Well, uh, one of the things that's happening up there right now is there are questions as to whether anybody can get a paycheck uh, since uh, we don't have official members uh, sworn in. So uh, there are staffers up there already who are wondering whether they're going to get paid, even though they're uh, working uh, on the Hill right now. Andre Gillespie joins us again today. We're glad to have you back, Andre, Professor of Political Science at Emory University and director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference. How are you, Andra? I'm well. How are you? I'm great. Uh, when do you start class? You're not back in class yet, are you? We're not back in class, but we're back next week. Okay, terrific. What are you going to be teaching next this next semester? Intro to American Government. Okay, great. Yes, a standard class for you, I know. And we're joined by Chuck Cook one of the country's top immigration lawyers and the go-to guy whenever we want to talk about immigration issues on the show, plus all the other politics that Chuck is up to speed on. And we are, Chuck, today going to talk about Title 42 at some point in this show, which has uh, 
uh, really become uh, a major controversy as the Supreme Court has decided it wants to weigh in on whether Title 42 should be uh, overturned or not, right? It always amazes me how obscure immigration laws manage to weed their way into the conversation of the na national consciousness, and nobody yeah. knows what they actually are. <laughs> well, and, and we're going to get into that later because it is an obscure rule, but it has created some real chaos, of course, at the border. All right. But let's start with this story about uh, the Democrats, um, starting with President Biden who have decided they want to reshuffle their primary calendar for the 2024 presidential elections. They want to remove Iowa and New Hampshire, the longtime uh, first states, to uh, weigh in on uh, primary candidates and shift the, um, the states to, uh, to shift the states that have more diverse populations that are more in play as battleground states. And among those states, of course, is Georgia, which would now come, I think it's third. They, they would uh, start in South Carolina, then Nevada, and Nevada, and, and then come to Georgia. Uh, Kevin Riley, um, th this can be done um, only if Brad Raffensperger, the Republican Secretary of State, agrees to move the primary up. He has the power to do that. Uh, but we've now heard from Governor Kemp's office, Cody Hall, his spokesman, says that the governor has no interest in seeing this happen, which could have a imp big impact on whether Brad Raffensperger wants to make it happen as well. There are a lot of implications for this to this. Let's just start talking about it, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, so it's a complicated thing to understand because the Secretary of State appears to have the authority to do what he wants, but he keeps saying that, you know, others need to weigh in. I don't think any Secretary of State, in particular Brad Raffensperger, is interested in not doing, in doing something the governor doesn't want him to do. And then, of course, Raffensperger is also taking the position that he wants both primaries on the same day. That is not, you know, a requirement. They We could do that differently, but there's probably a strong argument that it makes sense to have them both on the same day. So the Republicans are, in, you know, obviously citing reasons. Here, here are all the reasons this isn't going to happen. But deep down, I mean, of course, they don't want to help the president. Why would they? <laughs> um, Audrey Haynes, uh, jump in on this, because I, I, I frankly think, so, so I think, first of all, what Kevin said is really important to point out. Uh, that we don't have to have the presidential primaries of each party on the same day. But as Kevin mentions, uh, it certainly makes more sense. The, you know, election workers, election offices, budgets, and their staffers are already uh, overworked as it is. So the notion of having them on the same day makes perfect sense. But here's what I wanted to ask you about and then go around with the group, um, Audrey. I, there are many of us who thought that Brian Kemp might be very interested in seeing Georgia moved up on the calendar. Um, yes, it might be of some help for, for Democrats to uh, build enthusiasm for their candidate, but it also creates a potential for him to become a kingmaker if the Republican presidential primary comes that early. Yes. Well, and let me give you a little background because I think, uh, you know, that is interesting. And remember that uh, Brian Kemp uh, was the orchestrator, helped 
uh, bring about the SEC primary, understanding that moving Georgia into a position to have more influence on the choice of the presidency not only brings a lot of attention to Georgia, gives people more influence, it also brings in a heck of a lot of money to the state because uh, right now, for example, New Hampshire um, generates maybe a third of the year's um, revenue based off of all of the uh, money spent in that state during the presidential primary, which is a lot. So remember this too. So um, this was proposed uh, early on. Uh, Democrats in the past have been the ones who've often made changes. Uh, for your for your listeners, I should say that the fact that we have presidential primaries like this is not really a, an archaic thing. It's only really been about 50 years that we've had presidential primaries. And the fact that Iowa and New Hampshire go first um, is really just sort of their own luck based on where they were at the time and and being really willing to work hard and keep it. Um, but in the new, uh, Georgia pitched this idea to the Democratic National Committee, and, and a lot of other states were pitching it too. Um, you know, southern states, northern states, and Georgia was convincing. They convinced the Democratic Party we should move up, and it would place them third on the calendar uh, Iowa would be removed completely. South Carolina would go first, New Hampshire and Nevada second, and Georgia would go third on February 13th. Now, traditionally, we've gone around later March. Um, moving up uh, would give us much more impact. But here's the deal with the governor. Republicans right now are planning on keeping Iowa as their first in the nation. They're not willing to change. And, and the conservative viewpoint is not to change things. Um, Republicans traditionally have been the ones who have been much less uh, willing to make changes. They did after 2012. And then they undid it all again because it really sort of backfired on them and they 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 weren't happy. They usually are not as coercive um, on their uh, states, uh, too. Um, so Democrats have often changed the calendar a bit more to influence their outcomes. But I would make a case as a political scientist that. Um, this new calendar might help both parties, might help both parties generate more competitive candidates for the general election and might expand their coalitions a little bit more. But I can see why Brian Kemp doesn't really feel that way. So sorry for the long winded. This is one of my areas of expertise. No. So I actually have something to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, you always do. Um, OK, so Andra, of course, to some extent, this is a moot point, if in fact, uh, President Biden declares that he will run for re-election. The primaries will uh, lose, the Democratic primaries will lose a lot of their significance. But, but weigh in, give us your thoughts on Kemp's apparent decision that he doesn't want to see a change made. So um, I, I want to thank Audrey first for um, that, 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 that brilliant overview. Um, I agree that this has the potential to be short-sighted. Um, and so Governor Kemp's calculation may be not to ruffle feathers within his party uh, coalition. Um, and that's certainly understandable. But, you know, one of the reasons why Georgia is moving first is not only because Georgia is diverse, but it's also because it's electorally competitive. Um, and that is certainly um, an advantage that we have over Iowa, um, say, at this point. 
So, uh, you know, part of me thinks that this actually might be cutting off one's nose to spite one's face. So, yeah, a Democratic president uh, supported this. But if Georgia were one of the first primaries, that gives us a lot of say in terms of determining who uh, both the Democratic and the Republican nominee for president would be. And I would actually probably urge him to consider it from that way, not consider the source of the suggestion, but consider sort of how this would actually benefit um, and display the prominence of Georgia politically on a broader scale for, you know, either the Democratic or the Republican parties. So, um, uh, Chuck, I'm glad that Andrea uh, talked a little bit about history, going back to when Brian Kemp was secretary of state and he led the effort to establish this so-called SEC primary in 2016, which would have moved a number of uh, southern states uh, way, way up in the uh, uh, primary uh, schedule. Uh, but we can go back even further, as we've discussed on this show on a number of occasions. In 1992, when uh, Governor Bill Clinton was uh, running for president and when uh, Zell Miller, then Governor Zell Miller, was one of his biggest supporters, Zell Miller moved the Georgia Democratic primary way up on the schedule uh, because he felt that coming out of New Hampshire, Bill Clinton was going to need a real boost to get his nomination across the finish line. They did that. Clinton came directly from having a fairly, not a particularly good finish in New Hampshire after all the scandals that were plaguing him, came right to Atlanta, held a huge rally. It was then the Omni, now CNN Center, and launched his Georgia campaign. He won Georgia in the primary. It pushed him forward as the party nominee. And then in the fall, he actually won Georgia, uh, a Democrat winning the state of Georgia, which didn't happen again until uh, Joe Biden uh, in 2020. Chuck? You know, what's really interesting about this is Georgia has open primaries. So, you know, anybody can walk in and it's registered to vote and say which ballot they want, right? You can just say, I want a Democratic ballot, I want a Republican ballot. If, I mean, if they have split primaries, that makes that a little bit more difficult, I think, for the state, as well as for individuals. Should I wait to vote in the Republican primary because I want to vote against somebody or vote for somebody? rather than voting in a primary, which really nobody's running if Biden's running for re-election. Uh, I think this has uh, a unique chance to uh, make the South what it really is for the GOP. The South for the GOP is the beating heart. I mean, much of the what you see in national politics today comes out of the South. And it's kind of curious that, that Brian Kemp doesn't want to re fortify that by having the early primary here. Um, I just think it's a curious decision. Kevin, before we leave the subject, I, I do think we might want to say, um, and I know our reporters and yours as well will probably be pursuing this, is this really a definitive answer from Brian Kemp? It came from Cody Hall, who is his spokesman, uh, and so has an important role to play. But the governor himself hasn't said anything publicly about this. Is, is there some further maneuvering that might be going on um, that would give Kemp reason to agree that this is a good idea. In the meantime, Democrats have reached a deadline in which they're supposed to set their schedule. It's problematic whether they can go forward without some buy-in from the people who control the election machinery in Georgia, that being Brad Raffensperger, Kevin. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a very good chance that, you know, Brian Kemp is not out there or planning to go all out there all on his own. Uh, he, you know, 
uh, I think that in order to maintain the status that he that he certainly has gained and to grow it, he's going to work with Republican leaders. And in the end, I think that he'll probably do what the party uh, nationally wants to do. Um, and and I do think there's always this question of do you want to go first uh, because of how prominent that is, or do you uh, play your cards differently and wait, and then you end up being the state that anoints the front runner? I mean, don't forget that's what happened in South Carolina for Biden too, right? I mean, things did not go well early, and then South Carolina crowned him. And even when Clinton won, remember, Bill? I mean, what followed the Georgia primary was Super Tuesday, and then he went on to win Florida, Mississippi, Missouri, Tennessee, and Texas in that yep. Super Tuesday. That was really what made him the front runner in '92. Yes, yes. Um, and it was Zell Miller's effort to get him uh, uh, up, get him up front in Georgia that pushed him to that Super Tuesday uh, victory. Andrew, one last word about this before we move forward. We know that Kemp has now made it clear he does want to have a national presence. He started a PAC, a national PAC, that will give him the opportunity to uh, uh, put money into campaigns of Republicans in 2024. And, and there's also always this talk about whether Republicans are ready to start looking at expanding their base beyond the usual white voters in the state. And so I wonder if both of those things would be helpful, it, it could, it, moving the primary up, the Republican primary up, again, would be useful for Georgia Republicans and for Brian Kemp's future. I mean, I think yes in general, and I think that there is a fine line between um, supporting tradition in terms of Iowa and New Hampshire and coming off as not being sensitive to the concerns that uh, Iowa and New Hampshire are not the most demographically diverse you know, states in the union. Um, and so there's tradition, but then there's also getting a, an early consensus of, that reflects what America looks like. Um, I think just in general, the basic competition argument is probably what's going to be most likely to appeal um, to a Republican. But the fact of the matter remains is that Georgia is actually somewhat unusual in terms of the diversity of its Republican Party. And you can make an argument that Texas and, and Florida have pretty diverse Republican parties. But I remember going to the 2016 Republican National Convention. Um, and when I looked in particular at where the African-American delegates uh, at that convention were coming from, they were coming from Georgia. They were coming from Texas. They were coming from California. There were a handful of people from other places, but Georgia actually had a critical mass um, of, of, of Black delegates and Black supporters who were there to be a part of, of, of that convention. And so when you do actually allow Georgia to have the forefront, you are actually allowing for more diverse Republican voices to also start to play a more prominent role in that process, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Audrey, uh, you started us off in such a great way on this subject. Let me give you the last word before we move on. Well, I would just add that Iowa and New Hampshire have rarely been predictive of who the the um, nominees are going to be or who the, you know, the winners of the general election are going to be. They just have not been. I would argue that the one benefit that they have provided is for retail politics. They've allowed um, candidates to go in there and do retail uh, meeting people one on one. But I think Georgia is a place that that could happen, too. Um, uh, you know, and so um, 
the calendar really matters. Uh, that's I've written a paper on that. The calendar really matters and how it is organized has an impact on the choices. So I would um, I would actually advise the governor to take some time to think about it a little bit more because um, a conversation needs to take place and it may be beneficial, just as Andra said. All right. Thank you all for a really good conversation. Uh, I will add one point, which is something we can talk about on a future show, which is remember that the city of Atlanta is bidding for the Democratic National Convention in 2024, and they're making a very, very serious effort to attract the convention here. I think it's going to be fascinating in the days ahead to see whether or not the DNC wants to bring its convention to a state that refuses uh, to go along with the president's uh, uh, effort to push Georgia up on the schedule. And I assume, I, su I suspect, we'll be hearing about that in uh, the days ahead as this story develops. Tell you what, why don't we get an early break out of the way? Because when we come back, it's time to talk once again about the saga of Kevin McCarthy, a lonely man looking to become Speaker of the U.S. House. We'll do that and a lot more after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Chuck Cook, Andre Gillespie, Audrey Haynes, and Kevin Riley join me for today's uh, Political Rewind. Um, so they're moving into the third day today at noon in the U.S. House to try for Republicans to try to elect a speaker. We all know that's been a very challenging uh, process for Kevin McCarthy. And uh, I want to talk about what's happening there, including how Georgia uh, members are responding to this. Uh, before we do, let's play a quick soundbite of President Biden um, and here's why, you know, while Republicans were fighting over the speakership yesterday, uh, the president made what seemed to me to be a pretty smart political uh, maneuver, which was he went to Kentucky, stood in a bipartisan group, including uh, minority, uh, uh, the minority uh, leader himself, um, to uh, uh, inaugurate a new bridge, to, to uh, basically open a brand new bridge, which had been uh, built by bipartisan support in the state. So while Biden is standing with Mitch McConnell, Republicans are feuding in the House. Here's what President Biden said when he was asked about the, the fight in the House as he arrived back in Washington last night. Well, obviously I am, for two reasons. One, it's embarrassing for the country that, you know, to be able to have a Congress that can't function is just embarrassing. We're the greatest nation in the world. How can that be? And we've had a lot of trouble with the attacks on our institutions already. And uh, it just, that, that, that's what worries me more than anything else. Kevin Riley, um, we know that with the exception of Andrew Clyde, uh, one of the most conservative of the Republicans in the Georgia delegation, all the other 
uh, Georgia Republicans have been standing with McCarthy up until now, including Marjorie Taylor Greene. Kevin, it's been fascinating to watch how that's developed. It has been it has been very interesting to watch uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene complain about fellow uh, elected officials causing chaos. I mean, I've, I've just privately enjoyed that a great deal. Um, and, and Bill, we already have, I think, some reports this morning that McCarthy is conceding even more to to the demands of that group of 20, I think, and, you know, still trying and trying. But again, I think that image, you know, the the what you played there of here, here's a group of people who either can't or don't want to or are incapable of governing. And I think that's what will stick with the American people. They are not going to, you know, they don't, no one's going to, uh, I shouldn't say no one, but most people aren't going to spend a lot of time understanding the nuances of how a speaker is elected and the rules and how it happens. But what they will pay attention to is these guys have been on the job for three days and they haven't done anything. And most of us, no matter how we struggle our jobs going back after the new year, we don't get to goof off for three days. <laughs> Chuck, here's here's what Marjorie Taylor Greene told uh, conservative uh, host Charlie Kirk on his show, uh, I think last night, quote, we should be fighting on the work that we're doing. And that's by getting to 218 and demanding good things be done. Not in here fighting over a speaker race that makes the Republican Party look totally inadequate and not prepared to run the country. We have to prove we can run the country to win the White House in 2024. Chuck? Marjorie Taylor Greene has never done anything to prove that she could run the country ever. Um, I don't know why that would change now. Um, I thought you were going to quote her talking about um, how she hasn't asked for anything, but all these other people have asked for things, and it's unfair. Um, you know, the reality is this should not be happening in the Congress. There's a reason it hasn't happened for 100 years. It hasn't happened for 100 years because this person that wants to be speaker plans it that way. They count their votes. They make sure they have all the support lined up. McCarthy knew he didn't have support. He knew he wasn't going to give in on the first ballot. He was specifically told that by at least five Republicans, which means he wasn't going to win. And he yet he just went forward with it. This That's what's really inexplicable about this. Um, he believes he can just shove it down their throats. I, I don't see Mr. McCarthy becoming speaker. He's going to have to move his stuff out of the speaker's office. I, I really don't see well, it. Andra, I do want to be clear on something, because I, I understand Chuck's point that McCarthy apparently didn't really have the votes counted the way he needed to. But I do want to be clear. I believe it is uh, there is a certainly a rule of the House um, uh, that says that's the first order of business that a new Congress must undertake. And it has to be on that specific date. So it isn't as if McCarthy could avoid the uh, the vote and move on, but he certainly hasn't done a good job uh, um, lobbying to get those votes, Andra. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the problem is he shapeshifted too much, mm. cut too many deals, and the MAGA caucus doesn't trust him. And they view him as being too establishment and actually being too willing to compromise with folks that they either think are not purists or even Democrats. And because they don't believe in compromise, 
um, and they are willing to destroy before they build. Uh, they just don't see uh, Kevin McCarthy as their partner in, in crime, uh, even though he has, you know, molded himself and twisted himself into trying to be acceptable to them. So I take this as a really cautionary tale for uh, politicians who try to be what they're what they really aren't to other people and learning that, like, you know, the people who you're trying to impress uh, won't respect you. And in this instance, they're actually perfectly willing to turn on um, on him. And sadly, it's probably going to cost Kevin McCarthy his dream job. Audrey, we should also talk about Donald Trump in 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 all of this. Uh, Trump uh, made a very strong endorsement of McCarthy the other evening. Um, and yet even his strongest supporters have said, uh, we're not listening to Donald Trump on this one. Uh, Lauren Boebert actually went on the floor and said, you know, he's my favorite president, but McCarthy, he should be telling McCarthy Trump uh, to get out of this race. It's another sign of Trump's dwindling influence in the Republican Party after a bad midterm for the former president, Audrey. Yes, and I would relate that to a bit to the um the, the change that we've seen in the Freedom Caucus. I just want to give your listeners a little background. The Freedom Caucus has only been around since around 2015. It had nine original members. Um, you know, you have to be invited to be a member of the Freedom Caucus. They've just expanded into the states. They have a state network. And their goals are to take power away from leadership, number one, and to give more power to the rank and file. So right now, it's not the entire Freedom Caucus that is going against uh, McCarthy. Generally, they vote as a block. They have a rule that if 80% of their membership, which is kind of secret, but kind of not, um, they can give their official uh, denial. And they don't really have that with McCarthy. Um, I will tell you, they started off as nine members. They grew to somewhere around 34. And now it's predicted that they have about 54. And you can see from the vote that the entire 54 are not voting for them. Uh, Clyde is a member. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is a member. Um, Mike Collins is also a member. Barry Loudermilk used to be a member, but actually declined uh, to renew membership. Um, and right now, uh, there have been some factions. And you mentioned Trump. That's one of the things that kind of factionalized in the Freedom Caucus. There's a group that was like totally MAGA. And most people won't remember, but Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and a couple of other ones, um, you know, they actually started their own little group. They wanted an America first group and the Freedom Caucus got mad and, and pulled them back. So watching what's going on, um, I would say there's about five of them that will not budge. Um, and it really matters because going back to Biden and the Democrats did so much better than expected. I think McCarthy didn't expect this was going to happen. He was looking for that red wave and that margin really made the difference. And when these people vote as a block, they can veto any comment. All the concessions that he has made, if you go back and read them, they're really bad for the institution. They're trying to create a house that looks a lot more like the Senate where in one individual can basically, you know, uh, veto anything. And that is not how the House is designed to work. Um, I, I do want to talk about the impact of all this on the country, if if there is one. And, and I think that's a fair question to ask. Before I do that, though, Kevin, I do think we should point out that Democrats are pretty gleeful right now, at this point, at least, about what they're watching their Republican counterparts uh, struggle with. 
um, Nakima Williams uh, set out a tweet yesterday. Uh, basically, it said this, for anyone keeping track at Representative Jeffries, Hakeem Jeffries, who's won 212 votes, all of the Democrats on every uh, ballot, and Georgia football are now a combined 20 and uh, zero. Um, so the Democrats are having fun with this, Kevin. But the fact of the matter is, at a certain point, you can't govern if you don't have a speaker. Well, you're absolutely right. Um, and there were a lot of questions about whether anything was going to be possible to be done in the House anyway, you know, after the election. And so I think the outcome of this, and I think that's still very likely, no matter what happens. I mean, there is a group of Republicans that are adamant about uh, disrupting, uh, you know, to put it kindly. Well, it, what this has done is set up the fact that, okay, Americans are frustrated with uh, government not being able to get anything done. It looks like for the next two years, the House won't get anything done. We'll have this debt ceiling problem. We'll have these other problems. And who do you think the average American is going to figure is responsible? They are auditioning for that responsibility to be to be stuck with that responsibility now. I mean, no one. How how do you forget? You know the the endless sound bites and the nasty note that Gates sent about uh, speak the uh, about McCarthy needing to move out of the Speaker's house. It's all all so crazy and petty and dysfunctional. That's what people are going to remember. So, Andra, here's the question: Does this matter to the country, or is this just a great spectator sport? for people who are intrigued by the inner workings of the U.S. House? You know, I mean, I think that political junkies are certainly <clears throat> getting, a, you know, a lot of fodder this week. Um, I do think that there are uh, potential implications for this. And so we'll have to wait for the public opinion data, which I expect that the public news outlets are, are going to, to release. Um, you know, this is, is making Congress look bad. I think it is making the Republican Party look bad because people are seeing the infighting front and center. Um, and uh, they are looking at this as not being particularly productive. Um, I think that uh, the longer this drags out, I think that the increased risk of this having a backlash against the Republican Party are actually pretty uh, grave. And then there are consequences for this. So if we go back to the 1850s, you know, where it took a couple months to resolve this, that is time where, you know, first of all, our members of Congress aren't actually officially members yet, where committees can't meet because they haven't been constituted yet, uh, where uh, laws can't be filed, deliberated and passed on the floor. If there's anything that comes out of the Senate, then the House can't deal with it, which means it can't become law. Um, and there are even, you know, talks this week about whether or not people um, are actually going to get paid because they technically have not started their jobs yet. So there are even really practical implications for both the members and their staffs that I think are really important here. And this just looks dysfunctional. Um, so, uh, you know, the longer this drags out, I think that the risks are higher, not just for the reputation of the institution, but in particular for the perception of the Republican Party and their perceived capability of governing. Audrey, um, we should also add this. Because members ha cannot be sworn in without a speaker in place, there are questions about what, what power a representative-elect has for, in some, things like constituent services. If I need help in getting a passport quickly, 
I would normally turn to my member of the U.S. House, maybe my senator, but member of the U.S. House whose office um, is set up so they can help expedite things like that. And that's just one example of many ways in which Congress people help uh, their constituents. Their question is whether they can do anything until they're actually sworn in. And that is because we haven't gone through this before. We really literally have never gone through this before. This is a historic um, event that is taking place. And and I would argue that um, should should we see it continue and and by, you know, predictively, um, I would argue that McCarthy has given in every single concession and, and it is even now difficult to predict because, again, it's gotten so personal. Remember Paul Gosar? He's one of the people who likely won't vote. He's mad at McCarthy for sanctioning him earlier. Remember in the AOC, I'm, you know, video. But things like the Hassert rule, which basically requires majority of the majority caucus to approve any legislation, kills any bipartisanship, kills, you know, the ability of the speaker to, you know, coordinate, collaborate and, and solve problems because they're giving one group. Um, such a veto power. And what that means is two years, this is how it will affect the country, two years, likely no laws being passed. I cannot see under that rule that they would actually, and the polarization we have, that, that things would happen. And that's dangerous. I mean, they're playing with fire. All right. Uh, we will watch how the uh, votes unfold on day three uh, when when the House comes into session at noon uh, today. Let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. And then uh, we have a couple more issues I really am looking forward to hearing the panel discuss after these messages. I don't want to let the show go by without reminding everybody that it was two years ago today, January 5th, 2021 that John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock were uh, declared the winners of their runoff elections, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and because of that, uh, gave Democrats the majority in the United States Senate. In some ways, of course, their election was overshadowed in a big way uh, on January 6th, two years ago, when the insurrection when the raid, the storming of the Capitol took place. And tomorrow, in fact, we're going to look back on uh, in the history of January 6th and what significance it's going to continue to play in our lives uh, even two years later and moving forward. So I'm looking forward to that show um, tomorrow. Um, let, let me turn to you, Chuck Cook, to start us off on this. Every day in the news, we are seeing more and more video of, I, I don't think I'm overstating it to say, thousands of people trying to cross the border into the United States uh, to get refugee status so they can uh, live here legally. They have been kept out by what's known as Title 42. Uh, tell us exactly what Title 42 established when it was put in place and what's happening is the Biden administration tries to overturn it and why it matters. <clears throat> Thanks, Bill. Uh, again, as we said earlier, this is one of those things which is very, very tiny in the law, but has a kind of an outsized impact. One of the things you mentioned is that the people that are at the border, 
one thing that if you've seen the videos, people are actually lined up. They're actually lined up in Mexico to cross at a certain place into the United States. And then they literally sit down and wait for the Border Patrol to pick them up. This isn't gigantic waves of people crushing and running away from the Border Patrol and trying to escape. They're literally trying to get the Border Patrol's attention. And the issue is why? Why is this happening? Why don't they just walk up to the bridge and say, I want asylum? Mm -hmm. Under U.S. law, you can't walk up to a port of entry and say, I would like asylum. And the law says in Title VIII that we have to let you in and allow you to apply for asylum. Now, we might deport you. We might do your case very quickly, but we can do it quickly. Uh, when the pandemic was really getting going in 2020, the Trump administration used a little known section of the law, uh, not within the immigration code, but within the code of health and human services, Title 42. Title 42 is a section that has been used by virtually every president for the last 50 years, including Barack Obama, uh, when he used Title 42 to exclude people coming from Africa during the Ebola outbreak, if you recall that here in Atlanta. Um, and so it's not something that hasn't been used before. It's just never been used on the scale it's being used. The Title 42 since 2020 has been used to keep out about 30% of those coming in and being caught by the Border Patrol. But it has been used to keep out 100% of the people who show up at a port of entry. So they, they walk across the bridge in El Paso, they say, I'd like asylum. The officer says, Title 42, go back. For those that did come across illegally and were caught by being sitting there waiting for CBP, this, about 30% of them have been sent back and about 70% have been let in either in detention or to come forward for hearings in the United States. Its application is a little vague in, in that who they're picking, who they're not picking. I can tell you, I met with lots of people that have been picked. But the other great problem with Title 42 is it's not a deportation. They're just sending you back. So people just keep trying. Uh, Cato did a great article about two months ago uh, where they got the data from, from a CBP and found that there were people being caught 40, 50, 60, and one dude 73 times he was sent back to Mexico under Title 42. So the numbers being caught are inflated because of this. The Biden administration said early on, we're going to end this. And they, they tried. Uh, they tried to end it. And several states, I think it's 17 states, sued them and said, you know what, you can't end this because we're being affected. So basically, the states are saying we have the power to actually manipulate or control federal immigration policy. Now, that's what the court case at the Supreme Court is about. It's not about whether Title 42 is a good idea. It's not about whether it should be used. It's whether the states have the authority to challenge this in federal court. And why this is actually kind of stunning that the Supreme Court took this case is only 10 years ago in Arizona versus United States, the Supreme Court told the state of Arizona, you don't get to determine who is illegally in the United States when Arizona tried to do that in their legislation. So Supreme Court law is clear on this and going back decades beyond that. So that they took this case as strange, but I will tell you, politically speaking, the Biden administration sighed a sigh of relief that they did that because it gave them more time to try to implement other ideas to deal with this crush of people coming to the border, the vast majority of whom are Venezuelans, Nicaraguans, and Cubans, each of them fleeing communist regimes and persecution in their own country. So it's a really quite a conundrum that we're faced with is our laws say you can, you can do what they're doing, 
but the politics say you can't. And that's where we are at the Supreme Court. Chuck, thank you so much for just a wonderful description of what's happening down there. Kevin, um, the question, of course, among many people in the legal community has been, why do these 17 states have standing at all in this matter? The Supreme Court apparently doesn't uh, isn't concerned with that. And unfortunately, Kevin, there are many people who see this as further proof that the courts taking up this case uh, shows the politicization of the court in a way that uh, uh, it, it is just very uncomfortable to many people watching this unfold. Well, yeah, it sure is. And, and Chuck, I just want to confirm this. Um, it, what actually happened is the Supreme Court agreed to take the case and then issued a stay. In other words, they said Title of 42 is going to stay in place until we decide this thing. Right. So that we're kind of in, in that point. That's the political shelter that is given the Biden administration. But I think the really terrible thing about this, and I think the politicization of the court question, all that is, I mean, we, we spent most of this show talking about the dysfunction in the House of Representatives. I mean, in the end, Congress has to take on immigration policy and figure out what to do. It can, We are not going to get anywhere on this if all immigration policy ever is, is a cudgel for one side to beat the other. And that's kind of where we have been now. Chuck, you 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 correct me, but it, we've been there, there like 25 years now or something. I 26, mean, it's terrible. to be exact. Yeah. 26. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we've had we've had Republicans in power. George W. Bush tried to uh, pass a comprehensive immigration uh, bill, uh, couldn't do it. President uh, uh, Clinton tried. I mean, uh, Audrey, there is no reason to believe, as Kevin used the and used the words well, it's a cudgel. There's no reason to believe that there's any way that Congress is going to act on genuine comprehensive immigration reform, which is going to continue. Uh, these maneuverings like we're watching unfold right now and these tragic pictures, Audrey, of people huddled at the border, you know, with their children looking for some relief. You know, maybe they don't uh, they shouldn't be allowed to enter the United States. Who knows? But the crisis right now is just awful to watch unfold. Yes, and I think it is indicative of of something that is actually very disappointing about our system is that real complex problems, and we have quite a few of them, do not seem to be addressed by our uh, governing bodies. And when there are attempts to try to do so, individual concerns about their ability to win elections um, trump them. And, And that is likely to take us nowhere. Again, you know, that is something that is very detrimental to our ability to continue to exist as the country that we purport to be. So I would be very concerned. It really is simply an example that Democrats and Republicans both, um, you know, whenever someone takes on the leadership to try and solve the problem, um, they're unwilling to get that support because it's hard. Complex problems are hard. You know, Andre, as this show is unfolded today, I couldn't help but think about what you told us at the top of the show you're teaching again next this next semester, Introduction uh, to Government. And, and I wonder, uh, as we watch the paralysis in our government unfold, 
what you tell your students about issues like immigration reform, about a Republican Party so completely in disarray they can't get anything done, Democrats unwilling to work with the Republicans. Uh, it makes your job a little more challenging, Andra. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I started a few years ago uh, just saying I'm going to teach you how things are supposed to work, not necessarily how they are. Um, but, you know, it's challenging. On the other hand, it does provide great fodder for discussion um, where you can talk about things that are happening in real time and then relate it back to the things that we were, uh, you know, talking about and thinking about from textbooks and from founding documents and other types of things. But yes, it has been exhausting um, in some instances to teach uh, this class since 2017, where, you know, norms were being violated and where things were not happening the way that the framers intended for them to. All right, Chuck, before we leave this subject very quickly, do I, I haven't seen it and maybe you know it. Do we know when Supreme Court uh, plans to take this case up? They actually put it on the expedited calendar and it's being heard in February. Um, so we would anticipate a decision and again, the decision's only about standing. It's actually even about Title 42, but probably a decision right. relatively quickly in March or April. Bill, I do want to share one piece of good immigration news. The Immigration good. Service announced yesterday that they naturalized almost a million people last year. Uh, a, a what does that mean exactly, Chuck? That Tell us what exactly. People, a million more people are U.S. citizens today than were a year ago today. Uh, that's a that's a wonderful thing. Uh, and uh, it just it makes me happy to see people continuing to embrace America. Uh, and that's a million new voters, by the way, that politicians got to appeal to. Yeah, which is one of the reasons there are people in in power who don't want to see uh, that many people naturalized. Uh, Chuck, I would bet that among those people are people that you have worked with and have helped attain that status. It's been it's been a great fun fun year to help people. That is for sure. All right, um, Kevin Riley. When we're really running out of time, and we can talk about this further on another show, but I do want to mention quickly. You know, Jacqueline Johnson, the former DA down there in Brunswick, who was uh, charged with a felony uh, 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 for violating her oath of office by not uh, 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 pursuing the uh, men who eventually were convicted of killing, of murdering Ahmad Arbery. She was supposed to be in court uh, this week uh, to, for her arraignment on these charges. This case has been put off for seven months now. The arraignment has now been put off, and people are pointing out that while the killers themselves have been sentenced and are in prison, Jacqueline Johnson's trial continues to be delayed. And there are many people who are quite disturbed about this, Kevin. It's easy to understand why people would be disturbed, given the profile of that case, the tragedy of that case, and uh, what she's accused of. So I, I, there's no surprise there. I, again, I, I don't have any special insight, but let's remember, it is extremely rare for a district attorney to be charged with a crime and face trial. And I think there's a good chance that the judge and others involved are just making sure that they're doing everything procedurally correct and they don't want to rush because of how, how complicated it will be to prosecute a district attorney. So uh, Andra Capital B uh, uh, published a pretty good piece on this, a long, a lengthy piece on this that we can actually send our listeners to. But there are those people who would say, 
um, that uh, this is that justice in this case won't be completely done until the prosecutor who refused to pursue this case uh, is held accountable for it. We've got about 20 seconds to give me a quick answer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is what civil rights activists are going to call procedural injustice. So um, making sure that you use the you know legal system to get out of things as opposed to using it to hold people accountable and to see truth. Um, and so if the process gets dragged out and nothing ends up coming um, of, 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 of an indictment, right, there are going to be people who will, who will cry foul. All right. Andre Gillespie, you get the last word for what I think was a terrific conversation today. Thank you for being with us. Audrey Haynes, Chuck Cook, Kevin Riley. What a joy to have this discussion with all of you today. Thanks for being here. We're back tomorrow. We're going to look back on January 6th and what happened two years ago tomorrow at the United States Capitol. Until then, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. Go get every vaccination, vaccination you can for COVID. Bye-bye, everybody.